You're listening to the Growth Experts Podcast. So if you're looking to 10X your business by learning proven growth strategies, you're in the right place. During my interviews with top CEOs, entrepreneurs, and marketers, I dig deep to uncover the real strategies, hacks, and tools to help you achieve your goals. And I'm your host, Dennis Brown. Hey, have you ever wondered how I generate thousands of inbound leads per year using LinkedIn? Well, this episode is sponsored by my guide, The Ultimate Guide to Generating Inbound Leads with LinkedIn. This is the definitive guide on how to consistently generate inbound leads using LinkedIn and social selling. So if you want a copy of that guide, just send a text to 44222 with the word L-I guide, all one word, L-I guide to 44222, or you can go to my website at askdennisbrown.com forward slash guide. Now let's get on with the show. Hey, welcome back, everybody. And today we have yet another amazing guest. His name is Derek Carroll. And Derek is an entrepreneur with multiple exits. And I'm going to let him give you the explanation. He's the CEO of Bright Pearl. But give us a quick backstory and welcome to the show, Derek. Dan, it's a pleasure to be with you today. It's a bit about myself. I did startups in the 90s. Uh, some of them were great. One of them was awful. So I've got, that, uh, I've got those scars. The last one was bought by a large company called Symantec, big security company. And I actually had my uh, first kid that year. My wife asked me, no more startups for a while. So I stayed at that large corporate for 10 years. And when I was there, I, got, uh, I was involved with the M&A team. And I ended up running sales and marketing for a company called Norton, which is a big antivirus brand. And then uh, uh, my, my wife gave me permission to go back into the world of uh, startups and real business. So I joined Bride Pearl in 2016. Why in God's name would she do that? You had a nice steady job at a nice big company. You probably weren't working 80 hours a week. You probably had a nice schedule and you were home. And why go back into startups? Well, I, wasn't, I didn't have a nice schedule. I wasn't home. I was on a plane all the time because it was a global role. And uh, you know, startups and, and growth projects are in my DNA and that's what attracts me. So I wanted to get back to sanity. And, and my kids were quite sick of me at that stage. They were quite happy to uh, head off to school where they're at now. Perfect. All right. So listen, today, you're, but you are now the CEO of Bright Pearl, correct? Correct. Yeah. What, what year did you take that over? 16? April 16, 2016. Yeah. I, I looked at a couple of other projects when I decided to leave big company. I was looking for operators in markets that were likely to be disrupted, that were potentially you know, undervalued, not doing so well, that I could get involved and execute a playbook around a turnaround. And uh, looked at three, found Bright Pearl, joined in April 16. Yeah. Okay, great. So just, just to tease the audience a little bit here, okay? What we're going to talk about is that it, what you just alluded to is the turnaround of Bright Pearl. You came in mm-hmm. as a CEO. They were an established business. They weren't doing yeah. great. I mean, they had raised some capital. They were moving along, but they weren't doing great. You came in and turned that around to the point now where you guys are starting to emerge as one of the market leaders. You're raising capital. Mm-hmm. There's all, things go- all kinds of things going on. So mm-hmm. why did you pick Bright Pearl? So it first, well, was first, first, what is, what is Bright Pearl? I'm sorry. Let's start there. What is Bright Pearl? Yeah. So Bright Pearl today looks after all of the operational jobs of work that occur after a customer presses the buy button online or in a shop on a, on a point of sale. And we handle all of the steps that need to occur efficiently to put money in the bank and to get the box to the door of the customer. That's essentially what we do. So you're the entire back office basically after the shopping the, cart. 
Correct. Yeah. So we work with the likes of Shopify or big commerce and we just plug in the back office and off we go from there. So yeah, it's an operating platform. In the old world before cloud, it would have been known as ERP would have been the would have been the term. But today it's a digital operating platform because everything's in the cloud and integrated and easy to use. Gotcha. Okay. All right. And so why did you pick BrayPro? What was it about them that you thought, you know, could really disrupt and, and become a big player in, in their industry? Well, I liked the market. That was the first thing. And I knew it was obviously going to grow. And uh, it had a high bar to entry because today, if you pick a technology and you go after it, uh, it's very easy to copy other companies, but this stuff is pretty complex. So I wanted a high bar to entry. And I had a customer base that were happy, but under monetized. So there was an opportunity to change the monetization of the customer base to be able to fund the Get Well plan. And I liked the technology because these guys had been crazy enough to build a fully functional accounting module at the core of its platform, which meant as people traded, it essentially does their accounts automatically on the fly. And that was very unique. So they were the reasons I joined. How did you identify? You said you, you picked a handful of companies and then you narrowed it down to Bright Pearl. How did you identify those companies as you were looking at the market? I'm just curious. I mean, I know you were looking at things, big markets that could be disrupted, but you know, there's thousands and thousands and thousands of companies out there, new ones, old ones, you know, coming in, coming out. I mean, how did you identify Bright Pearl? Well, I looked at, at the time, I looked at um, macro trends, as you said, and obviously the move online. I think back then, the percentage of people who were buying online total goods was about 5%. Today, it's 11%. And at the end of this year, it's going to be 30% because of COVID. So that, that was really attractive. The other market that I looked at at the time or that made it on the short, short list was collaboration technologies because of the whole you know, environmental pressures, just sheer pressures with regard to office space and so forth. So I, I had three at the time. I can't remember what the third one was actually. And I went for BriPro because um, I met the team and the price was right for me to get involved. So it's always down to, could I get involved at the right price to come in and then execute a turnaround? So did you actually become an investor in the business as a part of your entry or was it more just coming in as I, part of I, the management I, team or consulting? How did that work? I came in as CEO and invested in the process. Gotcha. Okay. Very good. Yeah. All right. Awesome. So, all right. We talked a little bit about what Bright Pearl is, right? I think you have a little bit of sense of that. Who Give us a sense as to maybe the size or scope of the business. I mean, you know, in 2016, you took it over and then, you know, we're trying to talk about this transformation. What did it look like then? And what does it look like now? If you can fill in, you know, give us a little color. There. Yeah. Yeah. It was about 80 people back then in terms of staff split equally between the UK and the US of A out in San Francisco was the office. Average order value was under around about $4,000 for customers. They had about 1,200 customers, but they were losing a lot of money every month. So it wasn't making money. It wasn't a profitable business. And that's what it was like when I got involved. And today, well, the other metric I would point out, the lifetime value was about $26,000, $27,000 for all of its customers. And so today, we're uh, just over 100 employees. We're now in Austin, Texas is our HQ in the States. We have, you know, our average order value is north of $40,000. So it's been a significant transition. And then obviously, the lifetime value of those customers is now over $200,000. And so the whole uh, unit economics uh, now work. And the company is cash flow break even. In other words, we're not burning money every month, which is really, really important. So that's taken three years to do. And 
there's been a massive journey on that, you know, within that period of time. So did they raise money prior to you and have you raised money since? So when I came in, we didn't have much money left in the tank, you know, because the burn rate was so high. So the first thing to do was to address that burn rate, which we did. And that bought us about 15 months of time. And then we used that 15 months to improve the economics of the business. And then I raised in 2018, $15 million from the investors. And then that was used to accelerate product investment and expansion of go-to-market. And that's really been fundamental. So to think about it, first phase was fix it, lower the burn, focus on the basics, and then use the success of that to raise a growth round, which we did in 2018. Great. And are you looking to raise capital moving forward? Is that something? Yeah, we, we, we definitely are. We're in a very, very big market. We've emerged as a leader, as you referred to earlier on, due to our specialization. So we're raising a growth round. We're in the process of doing that now at the moment. Because, you know, you can raise a growth round once you've got to that repeatable dynamic where you know what the return on a dollar is going to be into the business. And that's where we're at now. So we can go raise a growth round. Gotcha. Okay. Hey there. Sorry to interrupt this episode in progress, but I have something really cool to share with you and I promise to keep it brief. I've decided to give away $100 this week to one of my growth experts listeners. Yep, that could be you. Here's all you have to do in order to qualify for the giveaway. Take a screenshot of your phone or any device for that matter showing that you're subscribed to my Growth Experts podcast and then text it to 716-218-8981. Again, that's 716-218-8981. This will get you entered into the contest and a chance to win the $100 just for listening. Number two, for more entries to win, for more chances to win, simply share any episode of my Growth Experts podcast on LinkedIn, Instagram, Facebook, or even Twitter, but you have to tag me at Ask Dennis Brown in order for it to count as another entry. The more shares, the more entries. Okay, guys, that's it. For full details on this contest, go to askdennisbrown.com forward slash contest. Now let's get back to the show. So, one more quote. We're going to dive into the, the basic framework or the basic steps you took to turn this business around. You talked about what it looked like in 2016, what it looks like now, and it looks like there's a, you know, the economics have changed dramatically. And there's definitely some big decisions, probably some wins and losses in there that we're going to talk about. But before we do that, what's the number one channel that you guys, channel or strategy or tactic that you're using to get new clients? Because it sounds to me like most of these clients are a little bit more enterprise or am I off the market? Am I off the mark? No, no. I think, I think the smaller customers that we would sell to are merchants who sell online are in physical stores trading no less than two and a half million per year. They'd be the smallest customer up to 250 million. That's the cohort that we focus on. Gotcha. So if you, if you look at Gartner, they would say that's defined as small to medium small to enterprise, medium. Not, yeah. not enterprise, but that's what we, we operate. And, and the total addressable market for us is just over $4 billion in that area. So I'm not opportunity constrained. Right. So where do you find most, where, do you, where are you getting most of your traction? I mean, are you doing paid ads? Is it much more belly to belly? I mean, what are you guys doing to generate you know, deal flow? Yeah, so we have to be super efficient on the cost of acquisition. Uh, lifetime value to CAC needs to be over three. That's essentially the, the we, we, can't, we can't spend money on channels if we don't get that return. And so we are taking our, we basically find our customers through inbound. So that's people finding us through the content thought leadership that we post out there on the market because of the specialization we do. That's about 50% of our 
business comes from inbound, people searching for problems associated with our solution. 30% comes from partners. So we're tightly integrated with Shopify Plus, which a lot of your readers, sorry, listeners will, will, will know they're a big e-commerce platform and big commerce. So they are the next major group of leads. And then outbound as well. We've got people on the phone segmenting and profiling different territories in the US in particular. And then we reach out to them through social channels, email, and even phone call. Perfect. So they're the three channels. Perfect. No, that, that's what I was looking for. I was trying to get a sense as to how those deals are coming in. Because like you said, the economics have to work. I mean, lifetime value. I mean, you can only spend so much money to acquire a customer. Um, even though even though you've changed those dramatically, right? And you've now have a lifetime. Yeah. It's a lot easier to acquire customers when you got a $200,000 lifetime value versus a $27,000 yes. lifetime value. It right? is. Yeah, it yeah. is. That's, yeah. A, yeah. that's a high quality problem. Yeah, it, it is. And, and you also get revenue that's of a higher quality. Whereas if you're operating, selling to smaller companies, you really do have issues with corporate churn, you know, people going out of business or just disappearing. And that was a big problem back in the day when I joined, which we yeah. needed to fix. Well, let's dive into that now. So there was probably some, I'm sure that when you first came into the business, there was a process of kind of evaluating what's working, what's not, what are we going to cut? What are we going to, you know, what are we going to double down on? You know, ex- explain to us that process that you went through as you entered this company, you know, and the big decisions, or let's call it the big levers that you pulled in order to change those economics so dramatically, the lifetime value and, and the order size and everything that you were able to do. Sure. So the first thing was I made sure everyone understood who I was and what my background was and let them know that the culture was going to be one of hard knocks and transparency. So that was the first step. Then I spent 90 days interviewing them all. So I spent 90 days interviewing all the employees, a half an hour each. And then, and then I took a, a sample of 90 customers. And then I also spoke to our partners. So I spent the first period of the company just interviewing. And when I spoke to the staff, I was asking them questions like, how decisions get made around you? Where do you spend your time? How do you go home and sell your spouse that you've been successful today? So I really drilled into where they were getting value and what they saw were the barriers within the business. And through that process, I got to see patterns of what's going wrong, whether it was go-to-market, whether it was engineering, and I collated that in a report. And then I did the same thing on the customer side and the same thing on the partner side. And then I shared back the findings with the team after three months. And then I said, here are the findings and here's my recommended solution. What do you guys think? And it was that. I mean, literally, that then resulted in me I joined in April. I did that presentation in September of that year. And then everyone was told it was going to be the valley of darkness as we sorted this shit out. And that's what we did. So it was very transparent and very involved. And I asked people to buy into it. And that I think is crucial to any turnaround. You've got to bring the folks along. And there's an expression when the tide goes out, you see, you see who's swimming naked. And that's a great expression because the other thing we did was we set up these projects and we asked people to volunteer to them to go fix shit. And everyone volunteered, but then you could really see who was adding value and who was just being political and just full of shit. So that resulted in a lot of change on the people side in 2017. So here's a question for you. That three-month process, I'm not sure that every new CEO in a company that was hemorrhaging money, right, would be quite that patient. Did you do that prior to you know, taking over as a part of your evaluation process, prior to the investment? I mean, what, how did that lay out from a timeline perspective? Was that part of your due diligence in deciding whether you were going to be a part of the business? How did that work? 
So what I didn't mention is when I joined, I did the discovery, but the other the part of my pre-due diligence, I had asked the question, how do I pay for that? And in before I joined, I'd gone out and understood what the pricing structure of the company was. How did they charge their customers? And this is one of the reasons I joined. Brightpearl had a lot of big customers paying a very little amount of money for the use of the service. And so the first thing I did in like week three was I 4X the price of the platform. And I did it for two reasons. One, to pay for, to allow me to go and actually do the proper discovery phase. But two, to get rid of unprofitable customers. Because, and that's a key thing. If you're driving to reduce burn, you've got to make some tough choices around, well, who, who am I making money from? And then who do I need to do a better job for? Because they are the type of customer I should be selling to on a, on a viable basis. Okay, great. So that kind of happened simultaneous, right? That was part of it that did, same yeah. process. Gotcha. Okay. Yeah. So you did this evaluation of the staff, the partners, the customers. The second big thing you did was you tripped, did you say you tripled or quadrupled the price? Tripled the price? We quadrupled the price on the list. And then you have to go through the painful journey of dealing with the legacy of, you know, I had seven years of salespeople doing all sorts of funky non-standard deals with customers, offering them 10-year terms and all this sort of stuff. So you, it takes three years to change a pricing structure within a company of an established revenue line of about, you know, it, it was, what was it, about $6 million of revenue line at the time when we joined. And there was a lot of messiness in there that needed to be cleaned up. So any listeners that are listening, don't underestimate how long it takes to clean pricing to get it to true, transparent, utility-based pricing, which is what we have now. Ah, makes sense. Okay, great. So those, that, that was step number two or, or phase number two. Mm-hmm. What did you do then? Because it sounds to me those first couple moves right there brought you to the point where you probably, were you still burning a little bit of cash or were you, were you at that point pretty much break even after firing some of those unprofitable customers? And we, we were still burning a, a little bit of cash, but within the realm of acceptance of the investors. So all, all, all of that was sort of shared with them. But we were always driving for margin improvements and break even improvement for a company that had been taking money from VCs for what was it, seven years by then? You know, it's, you have to change the culture because if you have a team that are used to going to VCs and taking money, 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 they don't have the operational fitness to know what it takes to survive in the world and actually make money, i.e. be profitable, especially in technology. So that was, the, that was the focus there. We were burning a little bit of money, but that was acceptable to the investors. Yeah, significant improvement over the prior several years, I'm sure. All right. So what did you do next? What were some of the biggest things you did next? Well, this was done in parallel when I joined as well. I engaged a third party, a company called Alexander Group out of San Francisco. And I asked them a simple question. I said, go and validate the true value of this software to the customers I would like to sell to. Right. So I gave them a profile or an ideal customer profile of customers that we now sell to back then. And I said, okay, break my product down into simple English or describe the jobs of work that you would hire us to do and go and get the perceived value from customers that I would like to sell to. So that was a key project to kick off when I joined because it allows you to get to two things. One is what's my product market fit? And two, what's my optimized pricing structure that I should aim at? Because I did quadruple prices, but I didn't know where the true pricing point was going to be right? Because you've got to go through how much does it cost you? What's the customer's alternative? And what's the perceived value? They're the three checks that you need to do to go and find pricing. But I didn't have the time in the day to do that. So I hired this guys called the Alexander Group and they did that report for me. Took them three months. They came back. That formed the basis of a three-year strategy around product market fit. They identified what was good about us, how much people would pay for us, 
and what was bad about us in terms of where we needed to improve. So that was the third part of the strategy. So what were, if you can pull that back look, because that's a very interesting approach and I appreciate that approach because number one, it takes a third party and takes it outside of the company. So you're getting a, a much more objective view of your product and the market and everything. And so I totally appreciate that. And I think that that's very smart. What were some of your big takeaways from that? I mean, peel that back for us because I think you, I'm sure you had certain intuitions and thoughts and, and ideas and as well as your team on, on what it was going to come back as. But what did it come back? What shocked you and what was instrumental in helping you? Well, I knew, I knew what the answer was going to be when I heard them, but I needed someone to prove it for all the employees and the investors. And the answer that I thought they'd come back with was, you are completely selling to the wrong type of customer and you need to be focused at this type of customer. And the good news is you already have that customer in your client base, but you're not charging them enough. You're not charging them correctly. And so that was the, what I needed back from them was validation of my strategy that we're not going to change that much in Bright Pearl, except get efficient. We're just going to sell to bigger customers because the customer base at the time didn't have enough time in the day to understand the value that we were offering to them. And therefore, they were never fully adopted. And therefore, they were never going to be fully monetized. And they go bust a lot. You know, micro retailers go out of business a lot. So it's not a quality revenue stream. So yeah, I knew what the, I knew what the answer was going to be. And, and they validated that. And then that allowed me to smooth over and get everyone's buy-in on this is going to work, guys. Because the confidence levels were low in the team when I joined. So I needed to prove to them that they weren't as bad as they thought they were. Yeah, well, one of the I think one of the smartest parts of that obviously is you know is proving to your investors, right? I mean, you you knew you were going to need additional cash, right? So yeah, yeah, even yeah. though you made some significant moves to decrease burn, you know, you knew you were going to have to come back and and reload that investment at some point, or find totally new investors, which is extremely hard, you know what I mean? Which can be mm-hmm. extremely challenging in your situation. So that third party validation probably went a long way to help you know to help prove that you know you weren't drinking your own Kool Aid, right? And that you were that you were it, you know, it, making smart decisions based on real data, not just gut. Yeah. And you, and you have to, the key thing for us was we had to check and validate that existing customers could exist within the platform. They were already there because you don't want the opposite. Gotcha. All right. So let's talk about, let's talk about the next step, right? I think you, you know, that was, a, a, I think, a really great decision and obviously was instrumental. So what next? What happened next? Because one of the things that I'm kind of pulling from this is that the changing, you know, the focal point as far as the customer and the pricing had to have a pretty big impact on churn, right? I mean, what was churn like prior to all these changes and what does it look, what does it look like now? I mean. Yeah. So it was very high when we joined, it was high, the high twenties, which is unsustainable. But when you looked into it and you said, well, what can I deal with and what can I not deal with? So the addressable churn, is always with it mapping to the ideal customer profile. And what I found was there was a high proportion of customers joining and then just going bankrupt or going discounting because of the nature of the business. Today, we're under 10% churn, which is pretty much world-class for an enterprise, you know, for a B2B software piece. So we've addressed the issue. Well, we've addressed it by selling to the right customer. Like really, that's what we've done. And we've addressed it by investing heavily in customer success. And that's the concept of, you know, when I joined, if you signed a contract with Bright Pearl, you were pretty much left on your own. Whereas now you have a dedicated technical account manager, you get a health check every three months and then every six months in your first year, because it's complex. You know, it, you're automating workflows on behalf of a large company and you need to make sure that your product's fully adopted pretty quickly. 
So churn has, has basically, it's not a problem for us anymore because that's within the realm of acceptability. And the other metric that's really improved is it's called dollar retained revenue, which is it's a measure of what customers buy from you in year two and year three. And that's gone up to plus 100%, which is fantastic. Whereas before it was around about 80, 83%. Excellent. Okay, great. All right. Anything else you want to add that was instrumental in this whole turnaround? Because I mean, listen, it's been four years, right? And I think there's been a ton of things that have happened during that time frame. But if there were some other big decisions, you know, wins or losses, try to highlight those if you can. Then I have a couple more questions and we'll wrap it up for today. Yeah. I think the biggest thing for us was getting the technology side of the house, the engineering side of the house, to really focus their efforts on not building new surface area within the stack and focusing on what they'd already built, but making it more efficient and more available and more performant. And that's a really tricky thing to do because engineers love to build shit. They love to yeah, that's boring. In and Yeah, that's and boring working stuff. on the stuff I already did. I mean, that's not yeah. fun. Yeah, exactly. And then also to sort of, if you can get them around that, if you can get them aligned to that, then they can see the importance of, you know, the more you build, the minute you drop that code, you create legacy. And the more legacy you have, the more difficult it is to innovate. And so by getting the guys to focus on what they'd already built and upgrade that and make that faster and more performant, that obviously supported our strategy to sell to bigger customers, but it also allowed us to control the growth of legacy so that we can innovate properly within the platform. And that, that's a really difficult balancing act for anyone who's listening who runs a SaaS business. Yeah. You know, it's funny because my, one of my last businesses was a third party logistics company and I had a development staff. We built our own systems, our own TMS and everything. And so you mentioning that concept of overdeveloping and developing new things and, and legacy and all that, let me tell you, it's uh, I mean, it's a nightmare. I mean, it's an ad, trying to reverse fields after releasing different components to a software is like, it's like chasing yeah. cats and it's very expensive and time consuming. It is. And in today's world, like we're a mission critical company, but you know, we're a hundred people. So you've got to be very, very focused on what you address to ensure you're at the levels of service that people expect. Because if you know, if you've got issues, they've got issues. And so it's a real fine line. Love it. Anything else you want to add? No, I think we've covered a lot, actually. I think that's about it. Um, yeah. Yeah. Love it. All right. Listen, what would be, you know, just kind of get a little bit more insight to you because you're, you, you have an interesting, number one, interesting background and story. And I think your, your methodology and thought process coming into this is, is really insightful. And so here's a question for you. If you could pick any business superpower, something you wish you were good at, maybe you're not good at it now, but you wish you were good at it. You might admire somebody else who's does really well in this area. What would be one business superpower you would pick? <laughs> you didn't prep me for that one. No, nope. um, on purpose. Yeah, a business power. So, yes, for some people, it's public speaking or writing or being a coder or you know or yeah. you know whatever the case may be. I, I I think for me, I mean, my background is I'm a a chemist, so I'm but I ne- like I wasn't a very good chemist, and I ended up doing you know doing startups and stuff. So I'm naturally intrigued by the geekiness of the tech side of the house. So I wish I could understand. I wish I, I had the superpower of being able to code because in today's world, it's the only way of, you know, it's like magic. You know, you could sit there and create something. It's magic. So I'd love to have that 
ability because it is it is magic and I don't have it. So it brings it yeah, to your and, and I doubt you would use it, but it would be nice to understand it so that you could then have better conversations Correct. with your team and understand how to architect and the just the challenges. Yeah. I feel the exact same way because when I built out those products for our business at 3PL, it was a nightmare to try to understand the limitations. And it was very frustrating for the developers to talk to me because they because I didn't fully understand it. It was difficult. Yeah. Challenging exactly. Understand everything yeah. that goes into creating something as simple as, you know, uh, what appears very simple at the surface level. So no, I, I agree with you. I think that would be something that I would wish for too. All right, cool. What would be one, um, what's your favorite growth tool or software? Something you guys use on a regular basis to grow your business? A SaaS um, product, I, app, something. Yeah, I have to say I was new to it, but I have to say Slack is uh, just super cool in terms of the collaboration capability and rapid innovation. It's a great tool. It's really good. We use it a lot. Love it. And Zoom. And Zoom. Zoom is yeah. cool. Yeah. Especially these days. Yeah. I'm sure your wife appreciates it. You're in UK and your team's in Austin. So that's a good thing. Yeah. Well, the environment does. I'm not flying back and forth, burning those fuels up. But yeah. Yeah. All right. And what would be one book you would recommend? Something maybe you've read or you think might help the, you know, the audience along with their journey? Oh, Avoid the build trap on the technology side. So that's a really good book around the importance of not building what your customers ask for, but building them what uh, they don't know they need. Like that's a really, it's a very good book on the art of portfolio management. And I just put down uh, a book called The Rubicon by Tom Holland, which is a great book to uh, de-stress one and forget about the madness of running a business. Love it. Well, listen, Derek, I really appreciate it. Let everybody know how they can learn more about Bright Pearl, maybe connect with you on social or wherever you want to send them, and then we'll wrap it yeah. up for today. Yeah, brightpearl.com and Derek and Carl on, on, uh, is Twitter, is my Twitter handle, so you can get me there as well. Love it. Thanks so much for being here. Congrats on all your success, and uh, I'm sure we'll chat again soon. Cheers, Dennis. That's great. Thank you. Listeners, I want to thank you for tuning in. I truly appreciate your time. If you're enjoying the podcast, then do me a huge favor. Click the subscribe button now and please leave me a review. It would mean a lot to me.